This is an echo from the past, a rerun if you will. In this way, new listeners can catch up and old listeners can reminisce about the past. Everybody wins. But right now, there's a war. Or is it a war? Is it more like a business dispute between warmongering businessmen about oil and gas? Isn't that what all wars are about? My subconscious mind has this to say about what's going on in Ukraine. They tell me there is a war. They tell me there is a crisis. They tell me I have to stand. By the flag of a certain nation And I have to root for one side I have to hate the other side But Anyway, let's not uh, stay in the present. Let's go to the past. This rerun that you're about to hear was released on the 30th of August 2014. And in this episode, I talk with Ben. And Ben has spent a lot of time with the Bewiti in Gabon using their traditional medicine, Iboga. Enjoy. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number seven of Natural Born Alchemist. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. And in this episode, um, I'm going to have a chat with a... Uh, a guy I know f- that I got to know over the internet of all places. And his name is Ben. And the reason I know this person is because before I went to Gabon to do uh, Iboga and be initiated into the Bewiti, uh, I contacted him because um, uh, he had been there himself uh, many times actually. And uh, he considers Gabon his second home. And um, when I started this podcast, I I felt that uh, one episode should be dedicated to talking to Ben because he has some interesting things to say about Iboga and the Bewiti and and everything surrounding this. So, uh, yeah, let's talk to Ben. Okay, so thank you for wanting to talk to me. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Where are you now? You're in England. Yes, I'm uh, sitting in the west of England in a place called Devon. And we are very blessed to live in the middle of a forest. So, um, yes, I'm sitting in in the English jungle at the moment. And we're going to talk about uh, Iboga and and Gabon and Bewiti, I guess. 
And how did you how did you come in contact with this? Uh, by accident. Um, I was I was searching for another uh, tradition, um, the Santa Daime, which is uh, an ayahuasca church. And I was having a lot of trouble trying to get into to their uh, works, as they're called. And someone at that point said, "Look, I can I can arrange for you to go and try iboga if you would like." And I said, "No, thank you. Uh, I've read about that stuff. It's crazy shit. I don't <laughs> really want to touch it." Um, but nevertheless, I, I found myself uh, yes off in the mountains near Montpellier in France with a French group of Buddhists um, eating a boga, and yes, quite a quite a powerful weekend that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, <clears throat> compared to ayahuasca, it feels like a more fatherly plant. Whereas ayahuasca is a more motherly. That's my experience, anyway. Yes, I mean, I think it, it, we we start getting into slightly dangerous territory when we start uh, anthropomorphizing. I think it's the word is, you know, when we put these things onto a plant. For for, I think it also changes for different people. Um, I know many people who talk about iboga uh, as a feminine spirit. Um, for myself and my own journey with this plant, it has provided much more of a a male influence uh, to me. It's almost been like a father figure, really, to me. Um, so yes, it, it, we we have to be careful because it's it's the the way I will try and describe this to people is that you are you are taking in a living spirit and you are going to form your own individual relationship with that spirit. And so if someone says to you, it is this, you might feel, well, actually, it's more like that. And it's good just to be flexible with these things, to, to, to not uh, go fixing very rigid and hard labels as to, to what these things are. Mm. No, it's also, from my experience, it, was, it felt more uh, intense and, and stern. Not only the actual, when you eat the iboga, but all the preparations before and and whereas ayahuasca is more fluid and gentle and relaxed. Well, again, it's all relative, mm -hmm. really. I mean, you know, a lot of, uh, yes, uh, some of the, the ayahuasca practices in the West can be very soft and gentle, uh, but uh, some of them I've found in the Amazon can be very, very tough indeed and very, very intense. So... Uh, yes, I mean, I, I, I have many people sort of asking me, oh, well, you know, Iboga is much, much tougher, isn't it? It's much stronger. And I would say to be careful with that one as well, because uh, when one comes across a very strong ayahuasca brew, uh, you, that can be very strong as well. So, the, you know, it, again, it's difficult to really try and compare um, the two things. And people always want to make comparisons. Well, you know, how, how is Iboga different to ayahuasca? It's different. That's all you need to know. It works in a very different modality. Uh, yeah, it, it, it doesn't really bear trying to, to make comparisons, really. No, um, but, uh, of course, the actual experience can be hard on both. But I, I was meaning more the, the preparations before, whereas the Iboga had a longer ceremonial journey before you even eat it. And also... Afterwards, it was a longer, before you were normal, it was a longer calm down or whatever we call it. Well, in, in that way, yes. I mean, in that way, I, I would feel confident to make a comparison as far as timescales go. Iboga works on a much greater, longer timescale. 
than ayahuasca. So it does also need people who are eating it, it, it. They need to be aware that they, even though they may not be in what one might call ceremony, uh, you know, the days after they've eaten it, in a way, they're very much still in that place. Uh, the aboga is still working within them. So people need to be aware of that and, and how to to be with that in the days following. And yes, also the, the, the ritual preparation beforehand. It's good to to really understand the the strength, the power of this plant and how we, yes, ritual is very important and coming to it as clean as one can be, clean of uh, mind, body and spirit is is important. Um, but, you know, again, with, with other things, uh, the, maybe ayahuasca is more stern. I found with uh, the diet that it's, you know, there's more things to be aware of with ayahuasca than there are with the boga. The boga can be quite forgiving in a way. Um, with dietary preparations in comparison. You start hearing also, when, when one, f one first meets these plants, I think it's imperative to, to find out what all of the rules are and to follow them. Um, then as, as one kind of gains a footing within those worlds and starts getting used to those plants, then maybe you can start uh, finding your own way through, finding what works for you and what doesn't. But... Um, yeah, I, th I think it's very important when you start off to, to have total respect and, and try and follow those rules as much as you can. But then, you you know, you hear stories. I've heard stories about groups in the jungle uh, breaking off uh, during a break in ayahuasca and having a coffee and a, a pork sandwich <laughs> and then carrying on. You know, so you hear all sorts of things. It, again, it's good to be flexible, not too rigid with this is the way that these things are done. Everyone has that opinion. I think many of the rituals before is uh, part of like the mental, more a mental preparation that you're actually thinking about it more than what you're eating. Or uh, it's like it's to trick you into uh, concentrating <laughs> what you're about to do. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and and of course, you know um, what. I suppose the listener might not be bearing in mind is that when you're talking about um, ritual purification, etc., uh, and when when we're talking about it, we're really talking about what happens during an initiation into Boiti and the the preparation leading up to that, which is you know more or less a week of preparation. Um, so I mean, of course, there's there's different many different uses of iboga around the world, including ibogaine and you know different people who are starting to uh give this plant they will have their own um rituals for preparation and that might vary greatly but yes in in gabon in in Buiti, it's it's taken seriously so how is the situation in gabon it hasn't turned into a iboga tourist center yet uh, anyway <laughs> not like peru <laughs> <laughs> No, no. And um, I, I doubt that it will get to that point. I mean, Gabon is, is it's a very challenging country. It's quite a difficult country to get into in the first place. And it's certainly not set up. Um, they, they haven't got a kind of tourist infrastructure there at all. Um, so I can't really see that happening. Um, but there is, you know, there, there's, there's, uh, of course, there's an element of that. Um, there's stories of people turning up in, in Libreville uh, without knowing anyone or knowing where to go and just asking around for a, uh, an Iboga initiation. 
And there's always going to be someone who pops up and says, yes, <laughs> I will give you that initiation. Um, same, same as in Peru. Um, but that's also dangerous because if you get contact with the wrong person it's it's incredibly it's incredibly dangerous um you know with with that there are physical risks uh there are spiritual risks there are all sorts of risks really um yeah i think it's imperative that you know and that you trust the the person who is going to initiate you because you are essentially putting your life your spiritual life and your physical life in their hands so you wouldn't just rock up in another country and say, you know, here's my life, <laughs> do with it what you will. You need to be careful with these things. So when when you look at, uh, I mean, I, I've, yeah, I've been initiated with two separate groups in Gabon and both of them, the, the standard procedure is you're there for a week or two beforehand. Uh, you're getting to know the people that are around you. They are also getting to know you. So you need that, that time to start forming a bond of trust and to start, gain an understanding of the people who are initiating you and vice versa. Um, so, yes, it, it, it's really, I think, for anyone thinking of going to Gabon, uh, do your research beforehand and make sure you feel comfortable with, um, yeah, who, who you're going to see. I mean, bear in mind that Gabon is quite a crazy country. And uh, yes, when you when you when you start dealing with people in Gabon, there, there's a kind of craziness to it. This is all part of Boiti. Boiti is quite a crazy spiritual path, one way or another. Um, so yes, don't be put off by that, but but make sure you know who you're going to and yeah, what you're going to do. Yeah, and, and Gab, I, I would say Gabon is a nice African country to visit, even if you don't do iboga, just to check it out absolutely it's yes it's an absolute jewel it's uh incredibly uh beautiful incredibly rich in flora and fauna and their culture or cultures plural are just amazing uh it's it's so diverse such a, a rich country and, mm. and and relatively safe compared to you know like it's not like congo or anything like that no, absolutely. And um, I mean, in my experience of, of traveling around uh, several countries in Africa and, and other countries around the world, I found Gabon to be one of the least um, hassle. Uh, it's, it's, it's probably the most hassle free country I've, I've been to. Um, people, yeah, people are very easygoing, relaxed. Uh, it's a friendly place. And yeah, yes, I, I I like it a lot. It's it's a, it's a quite an amazing place. And how 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 the people who live there are? They, would you say? I mean, they're poor, I guess, compared to our standards. But uh, I didn't see any like I've been to India. I, I never saw any poverty like I saw in India, for instance. Sure. Um, I mean, I think it's also partly dependent on whereabouts you go. Um, but I mean, the the irony with Gabon is that it, yes, it's a country that has got uh, generally a very poor population, and yet the country itself has got uh, incredible wealth. It's had incredible oil wealth, mineral wealth, uh, logging, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, yes, uh, I suppose it's a, a quite a typical situation, really, that that money has been 
taken off uh, by an elite. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very strange place. It's very expensive to to go there. the The prices are probably the same as most of Europe um, to to buy a meal or something like that out. Mm. How how often do you go there? It seems to be working out about once every couple of years. Um, so yes, it, it's it, it's generally it's, it's not a holiday uh, when I go there. So. Um, Yeah, it, it generally works out about once every couple of years at the moment. I heard when I was there, I heard about, I don't know much about it, maybe you do, about this thing where they're trying to steal the iboga or they, it's like um, the seeds. Well, I th- uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's being ripped out of the ground wherever it can be ripped out of the ground. Um, so if it's growing in a national park and someone pulls it out of the ground, well, who's stealing from who? Uh, I mean, there are examples of buitiists who will plant uh, iboga trees in their garden, their own supply. There's been many examples of those trees being stolen. But generally, it's it's gone from being um, something which had no monetary value uh, over the last kind of 10, 15 years. I don't know. I mean, I I've, I've, was first in Gabon in 2006 or seven, and uh, it, it had a monetary value then, but it was very low. Uh, over these last 10 years, I've seen it just skyrocket, really. Uh, so when you, when you have something that has such a value, it becomes a commodity. And yeah, it, it becomes the same as people trying to smuggle cocaine out of South America. People are now trying to smuggle Iboga out of um, Africa. They're finding, they found uh, consignments of Iboga in the same Um, smuggled packages as ivory now so it gives you an idea of the yeah i suppose the the level of determination to to get as much iboga out of that country as possible but i so, iboga is not as illegal worldwide as ayahuasca uh, isn't it legal in in like in england or uh no we have to be careful it's not it's not legal in england as as far as i'm aware its classification at the moment is as an experimental substance, which means that it is, um, it's legal to possess and to consume, but it would be illegal to sell or to distribute. Um, so it's, it's, there's still a gray area in this country. Uh, in other countries, uh, it's uh, the equivalent of a, a class A or a schedule one drug, uh, for America, for example. But in other countries, they're they're taking it under their wing, and um, yes, it's it's legalized, and they're opening clinics, etc. So it's it's a yeah, it's a different story depending on where you go. Yeah, um, th- these clinics, there are many all over the world that uh, try to treat, or they do treat uh, heroin addicts, and and people have heavy addictions. Yes, with with great success. Uh, but they seem to be using ibogaine. What's the difference between iboga and ibogaine? Well, ibogaine is one alkaloid that is extracted, um, whereas within iboga there are many alkaloids. So it's viewed that uh, ibogaine is is the molecule that really does the work. Uh, I'm I'm not so sure about that. Um, for from my own angle i'm i'm not that interested in ibogaine um 
Yeah, I, I've I've always eaten the the wood in its raw state, and uh, my experience at seeing Ibogaine is it really, yeah, it, it's a bit too punchy for me. I, I like the way iboga tends to work, um, but you know there are practical reasons. I mean, for to give someone what is known as a flood dose, uh, to give someone that quantity in wood. In, in raw iboga uh, is going to be a very difficult task. Uh, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be very difficult. Whereas for someone to take one pill and to, to, for that pill to contain the equivalent of, uh, for example, 10 spoons of iboga, this is a very easy solution um, in order to get a large amount into someone. Yeah, the, it felt like uh, eating sawdust, I thought, uh, the iboga. <laughs> With some licorice taste and anise taste. <laughs> Normally, the um, the the comparison I hear is uh, sawdust dipped in battery acid, and I think that really can be quite a, an accurate uh, description. But it, it, yeah, these these things change over time, um, and when I when I eat it now, it doesn't taste so bad. Uh, you just yes, you develop a technique for getting it down quite quickly. Um, when people talk about eating the wood, uh, really, it's better not to eat it. It's better just to swallow it with a little gulp of water. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I noticed uh, in the preparations to my ceremony, they mm -hmm. gave me one spoon. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't feel anything much at all. And then I mm -hmm. had my ceremony. And then my friends were having their ceremony when I was finished. So during their preparation, I had just one spoon, and that mm -hmm. one spoon was extremely strong. So <laughs> yes. is, is, is it like the iboga, uh, once you're initiated, you uh, are more sensitive to it? Gosh, I mean, again, it goes back to what I was saying about uh, understanding that you're, you're building a relationship with a spirit. It's not... Uh, yeah, everyone, everyone is going to be different. But the... In my own experience, I would say that, yes, one's relationship to Iboga definitely changes uh, after the initiation. Um, and in my own experience, I would say that every time you take the wood, it will be different for you, depending on what's going on for you. Yeah, it's going to be different every single time. Um, I've had many, many similar experiences where, you know, one spoon, two spoons... It, it's fine. It doesn't really touch the sides. And then another time, a different wood or different ceremony, different situation. Yes, those one or two spoons can really knock me flat. Um, but so, yes, uh, I mean, the other thing to also bear in mind is that a, a batch of Iboga may contain, uh, it, it almost it certainly will contain uh, Iboga from different trees. And... You know, again, unless you know uh, the wood that you're taking, you may encounter one spoon that's come from one tree of one age, of one environment, one spoon that's come from a different tree of another age, another environment. They they can have slightly different characteristics uh, to each of them. So, yeah, it, it can change each time, each time. I mean, this is where we, we, we start to kind of understand that we're not dealing with, uh, you know, a drug something if you take a, an ecstasy tablet for example 
there is uh you can you can more or less map out what's going to happen for most people how that experience is going to be what the time frames are the intensity all those kind of things iboga no this is something very different this isn't a drug uh this is a, a plant spirit which yes will be different depending on where you are what you need Etc. Etc. I'm also fascinated by both with ayahuasca and iboga. How you uh, or I had, but also people I talked to have these visions of uh, long time ago. When I talk to a person who has never had these experiences, they off you know they well it's hallucination, uh, but it's very hard. I I can't imagine. I could even imagine these scenarios. And these people that you witness that are, well, what I, I what I'd felt like ten thousand years ago or fifty thousand years ago, like four forefathers or or past lives or what? What's your theory on this? Is it is it true or is it just a a a, a, a is it just a metaphor for something? Um, listen, <laughs> I mean, the, the, just just first off, I would say that there's. We we have to be careful with terminology. And again, when people talk about hallucinations, I would say that what these plants uh, bring to people are visions. Uh, there's a there's a, a big difference. There there have been many experiences that I've had, and many experiences from other people that I've heard of, where the realities that one may encounter uh, whilst with these plants, those realities can be so much more real than this reality and this is when you start questioning hold on a minute which one is real you think i mean we're used to we're used to being in this reality now we don't most of us don't question you know yeah this is real bang it's solid yes everything's uh when you encounter another reality that you feel more uh at home with that is more real than this one Oh, okay. <laughs> then you start questioning, hold on, what is the hallucination here? What is the vision here? Perhaps we are all sitting, we're sat here having this Skype, hallucinating. <laughs> I would say, you know, we have to be careful with, with uh, uh, what we define as reality. It's a slippery concept. Yeah, yeah, it is for sure. And, I, you know, there's many people at the ceremony, like singing, dancing and clapping their hands. And uh, I think it was a full hour into it where I was laying there thinking, wondering why there was no visions. And I started feeling disappointed that maybe I hadn't eaten enough. And uh, it was just all these people here. And, and then I realized my eyes had been closed all this time. And <laughs> so it, it, it wasn't that I was in the vision constantly. It was just so real. I didn't realize. Yes. It was... I mean, uh, the, the, I, I recall my very first meeting uh, with this plant as well. And uh, after several hours into this session, uh, my goodness, I were, all sorts of things were going on. I was seeing all sorts of crazy things. And someone came and asked me and they said, you know, are, are you, uh, how are you feeling? Are you seeing anything? Is anything going on for you? And I turned around and I said, no, nothing's happening. You know, I'm not seeing anything. And I was very much in this kind of state of denial over what was happening. And that, that state of denial and disappointment as well continued throughout the whole weekend. And it wasn't really until the Sunday that, that something dropped, a penny dropped for me um, over what had been going on. 
So, you know, when, when people talk about eating a burger, I would say to, to, to be very careful with bringing expectations to it, you know, as to what it's going to be. Um, because in my experience, a burger will generally confound those expectations. It, it gives you what you need, not what you want. Uh, and a lot of people will approach this plant wanting uh, visions. They, they hear, oh, yes, uh, it's connected to ancestors, right? I, I want these amazing visions of me as an African prince and da-da-da-da-da. You know, all, all this stuff. If it's not appropriate, then is not really going to show you this stuff. You know, it's going to deal with what needs to be dealt with. And for a lot of people, especially in the West, we, we are full up of toxicity, toxicity of body, of spirit, of mind. You know, a lot of people just have a very intense, quite physical journey with Iboga the first few times as they start clearing themselves out. Then sometimes visions start. It, it, again, it depends. It, it really varies from individual to individual. Some people, from the very first mouthful, they have a very strong cosmic time. Other people will have no visions, even though they may take it for years on end. It's not... I mean, in my, in my humble opinion, really, the visions are not uh, where the real magic is. It's not where the real work lies either. Um, in so, I mean, yeah, to some degree, they can sometimes be distractions from what really is, is going on and what one should really be paying attention to. Um, they often can give people indications, pointers of what they might need to look at in their life. But the real, for me, the real magic of Iboga tends to come after the ceremonies, after one has eaten it, when you can start integrating what you might have seen, what you might have felt during your experience with Iboga, if you can start integrating that into your life and start trying to live that feeling every single day, then this is when Iboga really puts out a giant helping hand into your life. It tends to become a very profound presence. Uh, I mean, this is, it's difficult for me to, to talk about this in a way because, again, I'm speaking from the perspective of uh, undergoing initiation and becoming involved in Bwiti afterwards. So I think for people who, who uh, maybe just attend an iboga ceremony somewhere else around the world and they, they take a, an amount of iboga, what this tends to do is open up a, a very large and very beautiful window of opportunity in their lives. Um, and depending on how someone is with the plant, how much they honour it, how much they really, yeah, cherish that experience. That can, that can kind of depend how long the plant, the spirit of that plant is with that person afterwards. I mean, it, it, you know, different people will say different things, but in a way I feel that once you, once you take the holy wood, once you have that spirit inside you, it's, it's there forever. It's a connection. It, it starts, yeah, connecting you to, to different forces. Um, and one of the, you know, the main force, going back to what you were saying about people having very ancient, prehistoric, maybe even visions of landscapes of peoples, etc. What you do when you eat this root, you really are taken into the roots of planetary consciousness of Gaia. Um, that, that's, yes, that's how it feels to me. So once you start tapping into that stuff, it's, yes, you, it's, it's not a surprise that people, many people receive these uh, kind of very ancient 
feeling, uh, ancient feelings, ancient visions. Yeah, no, I, mine was quite visionary, and um, but it was also uh, physically very hard, where I, you know, uh, vomited quite a lot. And even vomiting when there's nothing to vomit, which is the most difficult thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's tricky. <laughs> and that's why it's also, like you said before, you have to be careful who you do it with because, you, you know, you're in such, I was in such a weak state that I could not have defended myself if there was any bad shamans or healers or what, 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 are, what do you call them in, in Gabon? Nganga. Gang- yeah, sorry. Nganga is the name for, for male initiate. Mabundi is uh, the name for female. But um, yes, you know, you are going to be in a very delicate state. You know, during the initiation itself, uh, it's, I mean, it, by design, it's, it's overwhelming. You know, you are meant to be overwhelmed uh, by everything that goes on. Um, but in the in the coming week before they close the initiation with the the dancing part of the ceremony, you are in a very open state, and so they, you know, uh, a good nganga will will understand that this is a very open uh, state and that you need a lot of care. But there are different interpretations of of what defines care. So we're coming from generally a, a very softy, softy Western idea of care. In Gabon, it's a much tougher country. You know, kids don't grow up with so much compassion. They don't grow up with much compassion at all, actually. So it's not, you know, these kind of things are not necessarily a concept that is at the forefront uh, of, yeah, a lot of Gabonese people's minds when they're doing these things. So... That's where, I mean, you you were very lucky, I think, to come across Tateyo and to be initiated by someone who has an understanding of uh, the, I suppose, the softness that Westerners require, the, the, the different cultural nuances um, that become very important to each culture. So there are, you know, if you, if you do a traditional... Uh, Gabonese initiation, it will generally be tougher uh, than what is given to a Westerner. And that's more appropriate culturally. But again, if you come across someone, if you decide to go and be initiated and you're being initiated by someone who has no experience of Western cultures, then you may find that you struggle quite a lot um, with the, the toughness, the harshness that's that's given out, really. Um and, you know, again, when, when you look at, I suppose, many traditions, really, when, when someone wants to be an initiate, I mean, in, in Gabon, it's called Banzi. So when you, when you decide to become an initiate, th- when you start that process, you are a Banzi. And when you finish it, uh, you become Nganga. Now, you're really, you're asking for, you're asking to be, to be let into a secret society, as it were. And you have to, in in some ways, kind of prove yourself. So you're often treated quite, yeah, quite badly until you have shown yourself to be worthy of, uh, I suppose, having that that door open to you. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's good to be aware that there is a gulf of difference 
uh, culturally between Europe and Gabon. And uh, excuse my language, but it's uh, the best way to describe it is a head fuck. Um, <laughs> it really can be. So, yeah, it's a good exercise uh, in patience, in surrender, in accepting what will be, will be. Uh, if you have issues about timekeeping and wanting everything, to, but you said this was going to happen at three o'clock. Why isn't it happening? Da da da. Well, our itinerary for today is it. You're going to struggle. Don't go. <laughs> Don't go to Gabon. You'll hate it. <laughs> yeah, they they said uh, the only stress is death. <laughs> yes, and that's short lived. After that, it's probably stress free again. <laughs> uh, yeah, my. I was there with my girlfriend also, and she said it was the best thing she'd ever done, but she would not recommend it to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. And, and in fact, uh, I think she's, she's really uh, very... That's a very good statement to make because uh, my, my conviction is, is that it's not good to, to recommend or to encourage another person to, to take iboga or ayahuasca even or any of the plant teachers it's something that someone needs to come to of their own volition they need to feel that call within themselves and then act on it because it requires a certain amount of courage it requires a certain amount of dedication to to start looking at yourself and trying to yeah trying to evolve as a human being um And so when people are encouraged to come and they're not ready or they're intrigued by its uh, drug-like qualities rather than its potential for you to, as I say, evolve, then you're, yes, you're, you're starting to get into slightly troubling areas. And there are, you know, there are very troubling areas with um, what's going on with these plants and more and more i hear anecdotal evidence of you know for example heroin addicts in ireland who are buying iboga off dealers not as something which may even help them to get off heroin but as a kick try this shit this is really strong you know there's i've come across people smoking dmt in joints at parties in a very hedonistic setting yeah all of these things are Yeah, they're just a bit risky, you know. They're really risky because we're opening ourselves up. And when we open us and I, I kind of speak from personal experience on some of these things of of yeah, ingesting certain things in certain scenarios where you just think afterwards, no, no, no. You know, that that wasn't quite so clever. When you start understanding uh how you open up your own energy field to others and Yeah, just just learning a little bit more about the sacred nature of these plants and why they have always been taken in ritual with respect. Um, it's important to bear that in mind. But, you know, th this is partly, I don't know, this is something within our culture where we want, we want everything, we want it now. It's like, yes, that's a nice little tradition with some bells on it and some whistles and some feathers. You know, I'll stick a feather in my hair and, yes, uh, go off and do whatever I want. There, there's a little bit of that prevalent um, nowadays. I mean, I think we're going to, you know, this, there's always going to be a, yeah, a period of, of kind of settling in where 
these plants and and some of this knowledge kind of start spreading around the world and you know ayahuasca has been out of the bag for a long time and iboga is coming out of the bag at, at an incredible rate um and so we're going to see kind of hybridization i mean the hybridization of of ayahuasca has, has really happened you have um yeah i know pe many people working with it in in very contemporary and very western ways and it works you know it really does so i'm not one of these people who will say oh the only way to do this is da 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 this way but these are again people who may not uh be working with it in such a traditional sense but people who have an understanding of the sacred nature and of developing ritual of holding sacred space these kind of things are really the for me they're the they're the baseline of working with these plants um so it's going to be an interesting time uh to see what happens how that that kind of pans out with iboga and you know the the different people that i know who are working with it uh, everybody has their own different take and their own flavor of what they're doing with it. Um, so yes, it's, it's becoming uh, quite a kind of widely, widely known and also widely used plant. But that is in turn leading to the other thing which I imagine we would or we should talk about, which is, uh, yeah, the, 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 the declining um, supply the the fact that iboga is being taken left right and center and depending on who you speak to uh you will hear varying reports as to how much there is left um i was speaking to a friend of mine who is is very very involved actually over there and he was saying it's not a case that it's on the verge of extinction there are still areas where it's growing plentifully but those areas are becoming more and more inaccessible so it's it's i think the aboga that can be taken uh with relative ease has been taken and i mean i don't know this is this is just my take on it and it's just from what i've kind of heard going on around the place it seems that for um providers uh in in this country or around the world people are starting to struggle a little bit with the quality. Um, there doesn't seem to be a consistency of quality anymore. There's still plenty of Iboga being sold all over the place, but the quality is going up and down. And I think this might well be indicative of the fact that younger and younger trees are being taken. And there's also uh, a common practice of crushing the entire root and selling that as Iboga, which isn't a lie, it is Iboga. But, you know, the, what you're, all you're after is about one millimetre of material, which is just under the dirty layer of the, the, the top, yeah, just under the dirty layer of root. There's about one millimetre of soft material, and then you hit the heartwood of the root. So it's just this one millimetre that we're after. So the, the process for, um, for processing Iboga is a very laborious, time-consuming job. Um, it's much easier just to get the whole root, give it a rinse, crush it. There you go. But um, so, you know, let's see how that pans out. But um, I think what is is really needed very urgently is uh, to find ways to grow this plant sustainably. And there are efforts being made um, to do that. But again, we start getting into very difficult 
areas of cultural sensitivity where there's a, a kind of global demand for iboga and there's a lot of people who are in big trouble, say with uh, heroin addiction, who see this as a salvation and, you know, they surely they have a right to this medicine the same as uh, a pygmy man sat in his village who hasn't got any access either to iboga. Um, but, yes, there, there have been more and more um, reports of, for example, sorry, I was just thinking of, of something which a friend said to me, that they had seen iboga ceremonies happening in Libreville, in Gabon, where they couldn't find any iboga, and they were using alcohol and marijuana as substitutes. And you can imagine it, to disastrous uh, effect. Um, so, yeah, there, there's problems. There are people working on trying to uh, get some sustainable options going. But, uh, yes, uh, the, the point I was trying to make is that we have to be a little bit careful with how this might be viewed by a Gabonese when you bear in mind the history of Gabon, of how they've been brutalised, how, uh, yes, their, their relationship with uh, the white colonialist has not been very good. And if you look at all of Africa's wealth, uh, there seems to be a constant stream of people from the West coming in saying, yep, we like that, we'll have that. And in a way, you could look at Iboga as being just another another treasure of Africa, which the white man is going in there and saying, thank you, we like this, we'll have it. And it's all being taken. So the Boitists are very uh, apprehensive about giving away the knowledge of how to grow it. It's It's, you know, in a way, Iboga grows very easily. You can pull a branch off, stick it in the ground and it'll grow. But in order for that plant to, to have the desired effect when we take it, there are many things which Buitists will say go into that. You know, it's not uh, just a case of getting the soil and some nutrients right. Each plant in the forest has a symbiotic relationship with every other plant. Iboga grows near other plants for specific reasons. There are specific ways of harvesting it. There are also many different species. There are seven different species of Iboga, apparently two of which are toxic. So there's all of this kind of knowledge which they hold and is being asked of them to give it away. Because, you know, people will say, well, you know, the Iboga's running out. So surely, you know, you've got to get on board with this. You've, you've got to start growing in big amounts. You've got to let the information go abroad, sell seeds to people in South America to get plantations, da 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 Yes, but this is, this is the view of the Westerners. You know, the view of the Gabonese might be different. Um, and this is the only, that's the only treasure that they still hold on to, is the knowledge of how to use Iboga. They don't, they don't even hold on to Iboga anymore. It's, it's going, it's been taken. So, you know, it's a difficult thing because for people like yourself and myself who have had the blessing uh, to, to meet this plant in a big way, to have the blessing of initiation, um, and to have a, you know, a, a little view around the world at, at the good work, the amazing work, the saving of, of people that this plant is doing, that's fine. But that's just our Western view. We have to bear that in mind. Um, from a, from a, an African view, it may be very different. Do you find, uh, you know, before you 
dived into all this uh, and now do you find it difficult to relate to the common man uh, on this no i find it much easier i find it much much easier yes uh because what i would say is that you know do working with these plants i mean i also yeah, i also work with other in other ways um I, the the way I see these plants are they are an incredibly powerful and very beautiful tool in a toolbox. They 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 are not to be worshipped. It's it's the connections that they start opening up that are to be paid real attention to. And so when if one starts opening up to yeah to to to, to connections. To to understanding that we are connected, di- uh, that we are directly related to a plant, a fern, for example, then it does, it becomes much easier to see that we are directly related to every living being on the planet, including including the the Nazi in the corner, including the rapist in the corner, the paedophile. You know, these are all us. We are them. There is no separation. So yes, I would say it becomes much easier to relate to every single being. Um, you know, if you look beyond the, the, the kind of idea of separation, then when you look at a fellow being, you know, you're looking at another reflection of that dreaded word, God. Uh, that's all. Uh, and I mean, you know, that's, that's easier said than done. I am aware of that. It, you know, sometimes when we meet people, we have our buttons pressed you know, people can still ah, rattle us. But yeah, it, it becomes easier and easier to relate to others. <clears throat> Because I, I've noticed a bit that it's... Um, sometimes you have to keep your mouth shut because people might consider you insane. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, because, you know, that what I just spoke about, about uh, this uh, lack of separation. Yeah, of course. If you say that to someone who has no notion of what you're on about, They think you're an idiot. It makes no sense. You know, you just start rambling in a about a drug-addled state and about the hallucinations. You know, this is what someone else will perceive it as. So, you know, the idea of being able to truly relate to another person is to go beyond the ideas of uh, shamanism, of connection, of, you know, because they have ideas of you and you're putting ideas on them. But if you can get beyond that, that's when you start connecting to people. But yes, I would say that when you first start off, I mean, I, I made a big mistake. Uh, the first time I went to Itiboga, uh, I was scared of what I was going to do. And my way of dealing with the fear that I had was to tell quite a lot of people, my friends, of what I was doing. You know, oh, wow. Da, da, da. And also, you know, look back, there, there's ego at play here as well. You're going to do something that's a bit special, a bit... Whoa. And the ego feeds off this. So there's those two things going on. When I came back from this weekend, I mean, yeah, I would say that when I went along to France for the first time, I went along as an atheist, as an absolute skeptic on things. Um, I had a bit of a, I had some, some issues with religion and I saw that this was still, you know, probably just another religious weird thing. By the end of that weekend, um, I had no shadow of a doubt as to the existence of a higher intelligence. Now, that's quite a turnaround. 
<laughs> for a weekend. And now you imagine going back to your bunch of sceptic mates that you've told, oh, I'm going to do this, that and the other. So all of a sudden, you're being questioned on something. Now, when, when you have a, an experience that is so strong for you, so ineffable, you know, and this, this is what these plants are. They, you know, we're, we're trying to talk about this in words. Really, when you take these plants, forget that. It's rubbish. You, they're ineffable beyond words. So when we try and take an experience like that and we try and verbalize it, we start giving the power to, of it away. We, we start losing a little bit of the power behind that experience. Then when we start trying to relate it again to other people, we're starting to give away more of it. We're, we're starting to attach words which then form different meanings in our heads as well as to what happened. And then, of course, we start talking to people who think you're an idiot and they want to take apart everything that you're saying. And then you find yourself defending and also questioning your own experience. At this point, really, you've, you've given away most of the real power that came with that experience. But I didn't know that at the time. So I had to go through all of those kind of things before I started seeing that the best thing to do is just keep stum, really. If you, you know, yeah, don't talk too much about these things beforehand because you never know how you might feel about them afterwards. And don't talk too much about them afterwards either. There are certain, certain times, certain things may help another person. Certain aspects of your story may be pertinent to someone else's story. But generally, if, if you have something that is so precious to you, a little jewel that's given to you that you keep in your heart, keep it safe, you know, keep it cloaked, keep it wrapped up. Don't, don't just go giving it all away too easily. That's why it's good also to do it with a, a friend or, or someone close, because then you can, because if you have the need to talk about it to somebody, you, you have this person with you. Yes, yes. Well, again, this is, you know, when, when you look at how Boitu, it works in Gabon, it's, it's a community building uh, vehicle, shall we say. You know, people will become initiated into Boitu. They join a brotherhood, a sisterhood. Um, that becomes very important. And when, yeah, when, when, there's, when there's issues, when there's problems, there are people all around you who have been through this, who all can relate to this. But what we're doing, we, we have to be a little bit careful when we go out for initiation and we come back and we have no... Iboga community around us, then we're we're changing things slightly. You know, it's it's becoming a different kind of of thing. Um, I, you know, I th I think it's good for people to make these connections after initiation. I mean, we've we've uh, made a connection here. There, there's you start building up these threads of community, and these are yeah. This is this is something which should be done really with Iboga. It it's good if someone has someone else to, to talk to who has been through what you go through, especially after initiation, because it's a long process. You know, it, it's no good coming out of the dance ceremony, the last ceremony of the initiation, which lasts, you know, from, from that evening right through until the next afternoon. You can't walk out of that and say, ah, oh, yes, I understand witty initiation. You know, it, that, that's your moment of birth. You've just popped out. You know, you haven't even opened your eyes yet. Then they, they talk about there's a pregnancy after this. You know, it takes nine months for you to really become 
the baby uh, because that's what you, when you're initiated into Bwiti, it's like a baptism. You become a little baby in a new world. Um, it's not, uh, you know, there, there's... I, some people may go along for, you know, the, the wrong reason. And if, if someone has a desire to become a shaman, to stick a feather in your hair and, you know, have people go, wow, you're amazing. You know, no, don't, 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 don't go and do <laughs> anything like this. Uh, it's a very, yeah, Iboga is a long process. Everything about it is epic of nature and very long. So when you, when you eat the wood in a large amount, the work of that wood, that wood will be with you, working within you for at least nine months to a year. In my experience, from what I've seen within myself and what I've seen within several other people uh, coming back from initiations, it's really about two years until, yeah, until that work really settles down and people start looking back and going, oh my goodness, you know, I really start seeing the power within that initiation. Um, but yes, mm. it takes time. And I, I don't understand how you can do it recreationally because since I got back, I've had, I have quite a lot of Iboga in a box and I've had it for a year and a half and I still have no desire to, <laughs> to try it, you know. So... I'm happy to have it in that box. I know it's there, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes, 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 yes. You should maybe, maybe, maybe keep it in the fridge as well. Keep it in a cool place so it'll last longer. But yes, uh, yeah. The, after the first time I ate it, it took me, I think, probably seven or eight months before I was ready to go back. Uh, and you know, I, I, when I met it, it wasn't at an initiation dose. Um, so I can, yes, I can understand <laughs> you may have a box of it sat there and, um, it might sat there, sit there for a while longer. So yes, it's not really something you take recreationally. That's for sure. Um, but gosh, uh, I should be careful what I say. I mean, it, it can be fun. It can be fun. You know, it takes quite a long while uh, to find your, well, the, the, the sailing term would be to find your sea legs. You know, it takes quite a long time to find your iboga legs as well and to be able to work with iboga rather than iboga just work you over, which is what can happen for quite a long time. Uh, and once you are able to work with iboga, well, yeah, it can be. It can be quite fun. But, you know, it's... Uh, one always has to bear in mind the sacred nature. And, you know, let's not, let's not start using the word sacred and get all serious and pompous. Uh, let's use the word sacred and, and laugh a lot because there's a lot of humour within Bwiti as well. And Iboga, to me, has a very, very, very good sense of humour, but it's quite a dark sense of humour. And... You know, I've often had people kind of question why in iboga ceremonies there's always people laughing. And they're like, oh, but in ayahuasca, it's, you know, we're very serious and everything's very quiet. Well, this isn't ayahuasca. This is iboga. This is buiti. And for this level of, you know, some of the work that iboga can make people do is very, very, very tough. So how do you, how do you bring some lightness into that world as well? You don't take it all too seriously. You know, keep humor there at all times 
And uh, this is something I, I cherish and I love about Iboga, its, its sense of humor. Yeah. But what my experience also in, in Peru is that uh, the, the maestros or maestras, the shamans there, they laugh all the time. And uh, so uh, I haven't had that experience that this series. Well, the people who, who partake might be serious, but not the shamans. <laughs> and uh, because they, they laugh all the time. And I remember one time I was very cold. I was freezing and I asked her in some broken Spanish that, you know, I'm cold. Can I please have a blanket? And, you know, she just laughed at me <laughs> loudly, you know, because I was just being a silly baby, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so they laugh all the time. And, and, um, mm. and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the difference, and here comes, uh, a reference on the music is that in in with the ayahuasca they sing or they might have a rattle or something but mainly they just sing but with the iboga it was like uh, an orchestra almost <laughs> you have drums and harps and uh, uh what's it called again the this ngongo mungongo mungongo mm-hmm. it's like a giant what do you call those things uh, like a, a Jews harp or a jaw harp, yeah, or uh, yeah, or Dan Moy, the the, the Asian version. Yes, uh, uh, the 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 mungongo is uh, seen as possibly the oldest instrument on earth. Uh, the the vi- the single vibrating string and the drum, the resonating skin. So these are the two uh, first instruments. The Magongo is uh, the the direct ancestor of the Berenbao, which is the the capoeira um, instrument. So the that the the kind of Magongo sound and technology went with the slaves over to Brazil. So it's kind of spread in that way. Um, the the yeah the Jews harp or jaw harp as it's known, uh, the Dan Moy, these are all kind of similar principles. But the Magongo is original, and it, it for me it's. Uh, Yes, I, 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 I came from a quite hedonistic background uh, into all of this. So I used to, I'm yeah, still very much into other musics and DJing. And, but at that time of my life, I was spending quite a lot of time staying up all night, taking mind-altering substances and dancing to repetitive beats. And some of this music we used to call jungle music. And then, you know, 10 years later, I find myself in the jungle uh listening to repetitive beats all night long dancing taking mind-altering substances and it was quite a, a kind of revelation as to something which may well be hardwired into us as human beings and yeah i just felt very privileged to to be uh, experiencing what i considered the original raving <laughs> and the original jungle techno music so the the magongo looks like a very simple little instrument. You know, I have people say, oh, what's that? You've got a couple of sticks there. And yet when, yeah, I mean, I, I play a little bit of Magongo. Uh, when you hear the Gabonese play Magongo, my goodness, you hear such complicated, you, you think you're listening to three different instruments at the same time. Uh, the rhythms are just incredibly complicated and Yes, designed with specific impacts as well. Um, there, there's something called uh, polyrhythms. A lot of Buiti music, the, the pygmies uh, 
are specialists in polyrhythmic music, the ability to get two different rhythms um, or three different rhythms or more going at the same time. So they do this within uh, the magongo. The magongo will be playing one rhythm with the hands and yet the mouth, which is used to create the amplification and the overtones, that will be doing a, a different uh, rhythm. With the harp as well, the, the, the rhythms are made so that often you start hearing two different rhythms going at the same time. This is all, this stuff will all start to unsettle you, unseat your usual equilibrium within the hemispheres of your brain. This is trance music. Um, you know, it's, it's the same technology that's used uh, around the world by indigenous peoples for helping one journey, either reaching those trance states or helping one journey within those trance states. The difference with Bwiti music is that this music has been specifically in evolution with Iboga for thousands of years. Uh, these two instruments, especially the Magongo has just, you know, yes, it's, it's, it's the sound <laughs> of, uh, it's the sound of the rainforest. You know, when you, when you're doing ceremonies in the jungle in Gabon, it, I've had some very strange experiences where I've been completely unable to, to tell what I'm listening to, whether I'm listening to the, the crickets, the, the sound of the cicadas in the jungle, or whether that's bells. Uh, to listen to whether I can hear the magongo. You start hearing the magongo in everything. And, yeah, sometimes it doesn't make much sense, but when you eat a lot of iboga and you start listening to this music, it starts to make a bit more sense. You know, it really, it really changes, as you may well have experienced. Um, they say with, with the, the ngombi, with the harp, that uh, this is how the voices of the ancestors will speak to you in initiation, how they will carry you. So the, the bottom four strings are the male ancestral voices, the top four strings are the female. Um, yes, it's, it's, my goodness, it's very, very special music. Uh, but then I'm completely biased. I've, I've fallen completely uh, for this music. But it's, interestingly enough, the first, again, the first ceremony I did and the first time I heard this music, I thought it was utter shit. I hated it. It really annoyed me. And it probably uh, at about eight o'clock in the morning, all I could hear, there's a certain, one of the things they do is they clap with a very hollow hand. And this sound to me, which just goes on and on for hours with the other music, it just sounded like someone was taking a rock and that was the sound of it cracking against my head for hours and hours. And it wasn't until I really let go and, and, let go of a whole lot of stuff and a whole lot of stuff kind of came out. Uh, and after that, the music suddenly sounded very different, you know, and I started hearing the beauty within it. And from that moment on, it, it's just kind of captivated me more and more. Um, yes, to the point where I've, I've been making a, 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 an effort to, to learn this music. So, which isn't easy when your teachers are a couple of thousand miles away, but, it's kind of worth it's worth the worth the trouble really mm. yeah the, mm. i had an i had amazing experiences mainly with the harp during ceremony where mm. it was just the most beautiful music i ever heard i think <laughs> yes and it's uh i imagine with you as well it's when you're initiated with the harp there they play it uh, directly into you which uh is something very special so when 
you know, when, when the, the aboga that you're taking is really starting to peak, uh, then the harp comes in and the harpist will place the, the end of the, the shaft of the harp uh, at various different points uh, in your, into your back, into your heart, into your third eye. And the vibrational power coming through. I mean, you know, for, for people who aren't familiar with Buiti music, when it's, it, 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 it kind of, you know, the, the, there's various different energies to it, but when it really hits its peak, in the peak of the initiations, these people are playing this harp with... Well, to be honest, these people aren't playing the harp. It's very obvious that Iboga is playing through this harp. You'll see a harpist at the beginning of a ceremony and he will be given a huge spoon of wood to last all night. That person will take the wood and they will start playing. And at that point, the, the volume and the power coming out of the harp is at a certain level. And when you really tune in to what's going on, maybe about an hour later, the, the dial on that harp goes up to 11. You know, it really, yes. It, and that is when the, the spirit is coming through. That is when the harpist isn't really there anymore. Um, and yes, that can be, you know, it, it really gave me a greater understanding and appreciation of what is known as devotional music. And, you know, now when I hear other, other traditional, uh, other traditions, devotional music, it may not, uh, you know, affect me in the same way. It may not, tickle my heart in the same way that Iboga, uh, Buiti music does. But I, I can understand now a little bit more about what's going on with those people and what's going on for those people when they're creating that, when they're making that music. Um, you tap into, yes, you tap into divine music, really. Um, and I very much, that's that for me is, is what I hear within Buiti music now. Yeah, so you had some... Uh some we could play uh, maybe uh, with the uh, ngongo ngongo what do you call it the mungongo 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 yes uh, uh, i mean i have many recordings but what i would like to play you is uh, just a little section from a recording i made of um a mungongo artist called maviango um in gabon and Maviango has such a kind of beautiful style to what he does, a very kind of, uh, there's a, a feminine energy within the Magongo. Magongo is traditionally kind of seen of, it, it, it brings in the male energy of the music in Buiti, uh, whereas the Ngombi, the, the harp, is the female uh, energy. So I wanted to play you a little bit from my friend Maviango. Uh, and also, uh, then I uh, would like to play you some harp music uh, by someone called Mboka. Uh, there's Mboka and Papa Nzenge. And if you've got enough time, uh, you can play your listeners a couple of uh, different harpists. Um, so these are all people who um, have been at uh, the temple that you were initiated in as well, the Bando. Um, and they were, I, I have many, many recordings, some of, uh, a lot of my, that I've made myself, a lot of come from other sources, but these recordings are really nice because I was in Gabon last summer uh, with a filmmaker called Duncan Bridgman, who's also a musician and has done various recordings um, in Gabon previously, but he was able to put mics on every single person within the ceremony and also mic up all the instruments 
So he got some really beautiful recordings and much higher quality than most of the recordings you get out of Gabon. And no, the normal way to record, set up a sound rec recorder, put it down in the earth, and you think you've got a good position. Well, what you don't figure out is that in Buiti, the ceremonies move around a lot and someone might kick over your sound recorder or someone might start playing the drums and it blows everything else out. So anyway, I've just rambled a lot about these two bits of music, but yes, uh, Mabiango is a Magongo player I'd like to play. My Maviango, he was there playing in my ceremony, so I know his music well. Mm. Yes, for, for, for me it was nice when I first uh, met up with Maviango because by coincidence his father uh, is a very prominent Buitiist called uh, Zingo and Zingo was my first initiating father. So when I went back to Gabon the second time round and I was meeting up with Tatayo and his family. Uh, it was quite a funny experience to, to have someone say, ah, I, I recognize you. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's nice. Uh, Maviango has been kind of present in, in all the ceremonies uh, that I've done over there. Mm. Hmm. And it's funny in Peru, like when you do ayahuasca, all the maestros and maestros, they're usually very old, but in Gabon, they're, very young <laughs> yeah well i mean partly that might be because not many people reach that uh that much of an old age over there the life expectancy is is much much lower uh than here and and probably peru so but yes uh, there there are a lot of young people um involved in Buiti. that's all relative because nowadays uh i think most young people are turning away from Buiti the same as yeah Uh, the same as most young people turning away from their indigenous cultures the worldwide. They want to go and work in the city. They want some money so that they can uh, get their TV and get their car and, you know, all the Western trappings. So that's the same in Gabon. Um, a lot of the young people are turning away from it. But, uh, yes, it's very much uh, it's very much for all ages. Um, I've uh, been dancing in a ceremony with a four-year-old initiate, uh, 
it's it's common to meet young children who are much more experienced than you are <laughs> with the voga um mm, yes it's a, it's a very kind of healthy attitude they have to giving a boga to all ages and also you know they give a boga to animals as well or animals naturally gravitate towards the boga um iboga it's for every every being <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one thing that's interesting is they i noticed they had a lot of catholic symbolism in some of the bwiti uh well within yes within fang bwiti so fang is is fang is actually the the name of a tribe um who i believe might have come up from kind of south africa a long long time ago but uh, fang is a very prevalent tribe around that part of um, africa and uh, fang kind of came to buiti relatively uh, recently i think it was well actually i don't want to i don't want to go quoting facts that i'm not sure of but essentially fang were the 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 group that adopted uh christianity uh in a, in a syncretic way the same as with the santa daimi possibly with with other traditions all around where in order for for those people to continue their practice they they will adopt uh christian symbolism some christian ethics etc but they will continue to also carry on their practice as well so the two become syncretically combined um so yes that's one that's one sort of look and flavor of buiti um but there are several others um there's even you know there's groups that use iboga that uh it's a different um it's a different lineage altogether there's uh, ombwiri which is uh I, th- i think ombwiri might be a female only group of healers who work with iboga but it's different from buiti there's mweri which is connected with iboga but different altogether so there there's yeah this is where i was talking uh, a while ago about the the richness of the culture uh the diversity of culture within gabon and that kind of works on the macrocosm down to the microcosm so when you start looking at something which to to a westerner buiti seems like such a tiny little crazy thing if they know about it at all and yet when when you start to know a little bit more about buiti you start to see buiti is is its own universe with all these different branches sub branches etc 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 so yeah did you did you make a choice to move out into the forest after all this or were you living there before <laughs> uh, yes i did make a choice um i found myself i mean i I'd, i've traveled quite a lot uh, in my 20s but then i found myself getting stuck in london for probably about 12 years or so and by again by by happy accident at the time i started working uh kind of in the in the realms of advertising i was working as um something called a cgi artist computer generated imagery and i was um Yeah, I was I was living the high life for a little while. I was earning a good wage and I was sticking a lot of cocaine up my nose and I was going out every night partying and I had more money than I knew what to do with and life was good. But it wasn't really. It it was going tits up. It was really yeah, not working very well. And 
that's kind of when I met with Iboga and I met with Ayahuasca around the same time. And also just, um, I started working with uh, someone called Ram Chatlani, who's a teacher of mine in France, um, which is more looking at meditation and martial arts practices. But all of these things started to come into my life. And I just found that as time went on, you know, the, the two paths weren't able to, to go side by side. They, they started to diverge. And, you know, I, I really hung on to some of uh, the, the kind of hedonistic ways for quite a while. And there were aspects of myself that I didn't really want to look at. You know, I was happy just with all the kind of amazing, cool experiences I was happening. But no, no, no. After a while, things, yeah, I, I started to feel it was important to uh, to leave behind some of the kind of toxicity of the, the London lifestyle I was leading. And uh, I was very blessed to meet my wife, Kate, at that time. And she was also very keen to, to get out of the city and to reconnect with nature more. Um, so yes, we, we moved, uh, down here sort of five years ago from London. Um, and yes, it's been an absolute blessing ever since really to be, yes, to, 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 to be connected to, into, to nature, to be surrounded by it, to be a part of it. It's, it feels like quite a natural way to live again. Yeah. Yeah. I've done the same. I've lived in apartments all my life, but a year ago, I finally moved to uh, to a house in the forest <laughs> because. No, congratulations! <laughs> so it's much better, and um, and the good thing, at least where I'm at, is that it's cheaper to buy a house in the forest than an apartment in the city because it's less popular. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it does have its drawbacks. Um, yes. We, uh, it took me a little while to get used to the fact that I couldn't just pop out and buy a pint of milk at three in the morning. <laughs> um, you know, all of those kind of things. And, and yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's where, where we live is, uh, it's, uh, there's quite a lot of alternative minded people down this way. Um, so that, that makes it a real blessing, but also one has to bear in mind that sometimes, uh yeah living in a city can can be a very uh kind of open-minded experience a very multicultural experience sometimes when you move out to the country you're going to step back uh several years if not decades in in attitudes towards things so there's always you know pros and cons but to be honest i, I when i'm tucked away down in the woods here uh i'm very happy you know nothing like that bothers yeah. me <laughs> you can always travel if you want to Go to the city. Yes. <laughs> yes, if I want to. <laughs> uh, did you hear about this uh, guy recently, this uh, soap opera star? Um, you know, I don't know if you know the mm. Days of Our Lives. It's like uh, uh, American East okay. Enders. I, I know of yeah. it. Yes, uh, I know of it. Well, anyway, of it. one of the actors, he'd uh, been on that show for seven years. He went down to mm -hmm. Peru and had ayahuasca. And then he mm -hmm. went, came back, and he quit his he quit his job in in this soap mm -hmm. opera series, and he said that anybody who watches this is an idiot, or a fucking idiot, is what he said. 
and he quit his job. <laughs> right. And uh, so, so uh, mm. like you said, he he probably had a very nice salary and he had this job and he was famous. But after this ayahuasca experience, he found other yes, motivations. Yes, and, and I think that, you know, that... That experience is probably uh, a very common one the world over, you know, with or without ayahuasca or any other plants. I think, uh, you know, at, at a certain point in, in one's life, it, it's easy uh, to become aware of what's missing, this connection, this connection to, to our planet, this connection to what one might term spirit. Um, when you know there's a lot of people start realizing there's a big hole in their lives uh and some people won't know how to fill it you know a lot of people will try and fill it with all sorts of things drink drugs etc um but for yeah a lot of people naturally feel that there's something big missing in their lives and yeah i think some people are very blessed to to have a a kind of some kind of, uh, I was going to say shortcut, shortcut's not the right word, but to, to be shown uh, possible ways out of, of, or ways to fill these holes. Uh, and ayahuasca and iboga and all the other plant teachers can very much give one an idea of how to fill that. And you fill it with more of yourself, of your real self. Uh, not this, this kind of little idea of oneself of of wanting more of um yeah i don't know I'm, I'm probably rambling a little bit but i think that uh the idea of kind of midlife crisis is something that's very prevalent and you get a lot of people who start to realize that what the mainstream is telling us will make us happy i.e money success wealth beautiful partners looking beautiful all of this stuff is bullshit of course, you know, of course, you, you probably know that. We probably know that. But there's, there's a lot of people who are very much still asleep and believing that that is their way to happiness. So people can wake up to, to that fact at any, any different point. Some people wake up to it when they're poor. Uh, some people wake up to it when they're rich. Uh, yep. But essentially, it's, yeah, the pursuit of, of material wealth. It's been shown time time again it's not gonna it's not gonna give and bring you happiness and you have, mm. have you always you paint right have you have you always yes. painted or is it after the iboga you started painting uh well i've i've always had an artistic uh leaning um but no i i used to i went to art college where i did some painting but i became more involved in uh, making things with my hands, model making, uh, industrial model making, more than painting. And I did actually start to get back into painting before I met the plants, but I, I kind of got back into it at, I suppose, when I had my uh, uh, kind of midlife crisis, when I had a bit of a breakdown, uh, I started looking at painting again. Uh, but what I've really found is that uh, Iboga... Um, mainly iboga but ayahuasca as well and, and many other influences but that they have given me something to to work with to paint uh, i mean i say paint i also kind of make um three-dimensional sculptures i use a lot of natural materials uh feathers bones uh, um 
yeah, all sorts of stuff that I find really in the forest and when I'm traveling around the world. Um, so definitely the plants have brought a, a sense of purpose to what I do and provide huge amounts of inspiration. I mean, really, they just start opening, they've opened up my eyes a little bit more to the wonder that's all around me. And that is the real inspiration. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I am in utter, utter gratitude for, for those gifts and also for the gift of music as well, because I have always been very into my music, but I've never created any music or, or been able to make something that sounds nice. And I never, I always had a bad shower voice. Um, and since working with these plants, uh, a lot of things have changed. And yes, the, the, the gift that Iboga has given me as far as helping me to sing and to play the instruments is something that I am incredibly, incredibly grateful for. So the, the, these plants and creativity go hand in hand very, very well. Um, I would say looking at it on a wider perspective that ayahuasca tends to really help people with music and opening up to, to, to music, being able to create music. Um, but from my own perspective, I Iboga is the plant that's really going to draw me in and help me with all of that. So I Iboga can be a very good tool for learning. You know, when, when I'm over there trying to learn music, every morning I will eat Iboga. And if, if I haven't eaten Iboga, someone would say to me, have you eaten? You know, have you eaten Iboga yet? Because I understand it's a way to start fast tracking. Um, you know, there's a, there's a quite a cliched, uh, a cliched word uh, called downloading. You know, people will talk about, I receive a download. <laughs> um, I, I would kind of, yeah, I don't know. I'm sometimes a bit skeptical about what goes on with all of that, but I would say that, yeah, they can really, these plants can really start fast tracking, uh, fast tracking your understanding and your learning in certain areas. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. So, we should listen and finish with uh, another bewitty uh, type of music, which is the harp, yeah? Yes, yes. Well, I was, I was just talking about um, uh, a couple of different harpists. Uh, so probably one of the, the most famous harpists, bewitty harpists in Gabon, is someone called Papa Nzenge. Um, Papa Nzenge is, I'm not sure what tribe of pygmies he's from, um, but he's a pygmy man who, uh, and a very, very, very well-known and respected Buitiist. Uh, um, but he's a master harpist. And I had the pleasure of meeting him last year. And this man blew me away by, you know, the cameras weren't even rolling. And he was just warming up and he was all done up in raffias and painted himself. And, and he picked up a big harp in one hand and started playing the, the bass strings. And then he picked up another big harp in his other hand strung it over his back and was playing the top four strings on a different harp. So this man was just making this amazing sound of one harp, but he's playing it on two. Uh, so I wanted to uh, play you a little bit of music of his. And then another um, booty harpist, someone called Mboka. Um, we, uh, well, Duncan made some recordings of him uh, last year and there's there's some very nice stuff of his so i'd like to play you a track from that but i'd also like to mention um the there's a cd called gabon people 
um, which I think we, we spoke about earlier, but it's a project that came through um, several people, but eminently uh, someone called Tateo in Gabon, who's very well connected. Um, and then from over here, someone called Duncan Bridgman and Josh Ponte. And they traveled around for, I think, six months, um, basically collecting music and dance uh, on film to record these cultures before they disappear. Now, they, they then took some of their traditional recordings and also made a remix album. Now, I, normally I might be quite sceptical, but this is just absolutely brilliant, where they've mixed uh, many different types of music from around the world with traditional Gambonese and Bwiti music. So this, this CD was never released. Um, it's a, I've got 30 copies of it. So if someone wants to get hold of some very, very cool Gabonese and Gabonese fusion music, then maybe you can give details of how to get in touch and they yeah, can buy that. Yeah, for sure. And and if they want to check out your uh, paintings and that, did you have a website or something? Uh, yes, I do. It's um, www.liveinthetrees.com. Yeah, I'll post it as a so, link. Also. Yes, they can have a look at some of the stuff I do. Cool. So uh, thanks for talking to me, and uh, we'll finish with this uh, harp music you mentioned. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Nice to speak to you, Alex. <laughs> Freedom's in the mind, eh? Basi, basi. Basi. Wangani ngumeo, wangani ngumeo, wangani ngume miyaje, wangani ngume miyaje, wangani ngume miyaje, wangani ngume miyaje, ye wangani ngume miyaje, ye wangani ngume miyaje, ye wangani ngume miyaje, direngula ngumeo, direngula ngumeo, direngula ngumeo. Didn't go and go, Mammy, I 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 didn't go and go,